This is Hebrews, an introduction to the epistle to the Hebrews. It's October 7th, 2nd, 2005. Our schedule for the next few weeks is going to be, we're going to be this week for lesson intro, zero. Next week we'll discuss lesson one. The week after that we will have no class, so you'll actually have two weeks to do lesson two's homework. And then we'll meet back here that that third week of October. So I'll remind everybody and it will always the schedule will always be up on the website as well, so if you want to check that out. Um, I forgot to put the, the the website address on the on the outline, I apologize. Does everybody know the outline the, the website address? Koreansonline.org. Okay, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you for your word, and it is a precious gift to us. We know you gave it to illumine our lives. We know also, Father, that you gave it to reveal who you are. We know that through it we can see the distinct outline of Messiah, and we praise you that you have done this wondrous thing on our behalf. And that you have provided a way for us to spend uh, eternity with you. We thank you for the time that we can spend together. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in doing this. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, Those of you who are are familiar, you're welcome to join in uh, with the blessing before Torah reading. Baruch Adonai Hamborak, Baruch Adonai Hamborak, Leolam Bayed, Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Bachabanu Mikohamim, Benatan Lanu et Torato, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah. Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou Adonai our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer... Speaking of the red heifer there. Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I will do my best throughout this study to point you to the verb tenses in your in your in your Bibles, in your English Bibles, and the reason is is because uh, many people don't have parsing guides, so you don't have access to tenses. I understand that's fine, but it's very critical in the book of Hebrews to keep, actually anywhere in the Apostolic Scriptures, but it, the book of Hebrews especially as we're doing this to keep track of the tenses because the translators mess with the tenses a lot. It, it, is, it is one of their main flaws in translating this book into English. This is from Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. Uh, notice the sanctifies, the blood of a blo- uh, bulls and goats, ashes of a heifer, sprinkling unclean, sanctifies, present, active, indicative, meaning it is present, it is ongoing. It's active, it means it's done to, it, it is done to it. Uh, uh, indicative, it's for sure. Uh, active is actually, uh, it's, it's, it's doing it. It's done for sure. Uh, cleanse. Uh, this is the, uh, the blood of Messiah cleanse is future active indicative so it's a future tense something yet future 
Our approach to scripture, uh, we have a couple different options. One of the problems as we approach apostolic scriptures is we're going to immediately come across what appear to be contradictions. Now, most people do not study scripture with, uh, with that in mind. Uh, honestly, they are uncomfortable with what appear to be contradictions. Not necessarily contradictions found within each uh, section of scripture, as some people would describe it, but contradictions between the sections. And the reason why is they're not aware there are any parent contradictions at all, because their theology has taught them there's not. Actually, there are no contradictions. But there are some apparent contradictions that we're going to look at tonight, just to start that process. But the reason, the reason why they don't see the apparent contradictions oftentimes is because they've been taught, they've been trained to overlook them because there's a theology that has given them a basis for overlooking them and not even paying attention to them and not asking the question as to what's the point. And, and the theology, whether it be dispensationalism or supersessionism, what it does is the theology tells them there's a time that this applied, but it doesn't apply anymore. Because there's a before Yeshua, after Yeshua. Okay? Uh, the problem with that is you're using theology to read scripture as opposed to let scripture speak for itself. Our theology should come from scripture, not the other way around. Uh, in this study, it's going to be our goal. We will never be completely successful in this goal. But it is our goal to allow scripture to speak for itself. And to try to minimize that bias that we all come to. One of the fair assumptions, and it is an assumption, but one of the fair assumptions is that what comes later has more detail, but what comes earliest is foundational. Okay? If, if, if we were to go back and we were to read, for instance, canonical councils from the, from the second and the third century of the common era, where they get together and say, what's scripture, what isn't? speaking of specifically of the apostolic scriptures or what people call the New Testament, we would read that, in fact, some of the, some of the rules laid down by uh, such people to include scripture are, does it fit with what came before? Okay? A basis for that is found, of course, in the book of Deuteronomy, where it says, don't add to. Don't add to this word. This is it. Don't add to it. Well, immediately after, after Deuteronomy is finished and Moses has uh, sealed it up, uh, we, d- we discover that Joshua's writing. <laughs> well, was Joshua uh, undoing what Moses said? No, absolutely not. And he, wasn't even, he never added to what Moses did. All he did was clarify or illuminate what Moses said. Uh, and, this is, and this is the point. All scripture comes from that single source, and that is from the mouth of God. And in the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we understand that everything must be in complete unity and agreement. Otherwise, we have a problem. So, that's the way we'll approach it. So, if we find what appears to be a contradiction, we will treat it as a divine bookmark, an exclamation point that says, Ask me the question, I know the answer. We oftentimes are uncomfortable with questions, especially ones that seem to question what we believe already to be settled or true. But God is not uncomfortable with questions. And we need to learn to treat Scripture as long as we understand that God is not divided, that He is not does He does not change, nor does His Word, we will feel comfortable with the questions as long as we rest in that truth. The question is meant to ask to be asked so he can tell us something deeper. 
Okay? This is the Rashi secret. What was Rashi thinking? Well, what was Rashi pondering on this? This is uh, the, the, the Jewish sage from the 12th century who, uh, when he came across something that didn't make any sense, he would say, this must be important. It doesn't make any sense to me. I need to know the answer to this. I don't agree with everything that Rashi discovered from his answers, but the point is, though, it's a very good way of reading scripture. Okay? Uh, it's, there's, an, there's, a, there's an old story about, uh, um, the, uh, about Solomon, the wisest man that ever lives. And in fact, the things that Solomon could never understand, one of them was the ashes of a red heifer. And, uh, but what it did was it inspired Solomon to ask the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? Let's look at some of these uh, apparent contradictions. This is one of them. Go to Leviticus chapter 16. We are entering the High Holy Days. So I thought it was appropriate because we are entering the High Holy Days. We can't spend a lot of time in Hebrews because you haven't done any study yet on Hebrews. Well, you have, but you haven't done it in this context yet. Uh, hopefully you've all read Hebrews before. Uh, but in any case, in, in any case, we need to uh, at least kind of get us going on Hebrews somehow without doing too much in it. So let's read Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. I'll read. Uh, this is from the New King James Version. For those that don't know, that's next Thursday. Yes, next Thursday, next next Wednesday is Arev Yom Kippur from and and as as we're going to see here, the the fast of Yom Kippur begins on evening until evening the next day Thursday. This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, which begins day after tomorrow, on the tenth day of the month. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. I would be a stranger, being of Gentile stock. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath, a solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes and holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year and he did as the Lord commanded Moses look at what we have here this is this, this day of atonement Yom Kippur provides atonement for the tabernacle the priests and all of Israel actually specifically it talks about two parts of the tabernacle okay it talks about the tabernacle itself and it also talks about the uh, um, where is it the holy place atonement for what's atonement a covering, which is Kippur. So we get it. Actually, it's Yom Kippurim is the name from Leviticus 23. It's the day of coverings. What is this covering thing? That's what covers the, the box, the Ark of the Covenant. It's a, it's a mercy seat. It's a covering. What is this day of coverings? What is atonement? If you were to go through and look at this uh, at the Torah, you're going to find coverings, atonement, repeated again and again and again. What is it to be atoned? What is, how are we atoned for? Or what is atonement? Regardless, this says this is an everlasting statute. Normally, 
we refer to the word atonement as having our sins forgiven. Correct? Everybody agree with that? Normally. Just off the cuff. Maybe you could come up with that answer, okay? Let's leave it at that for the moment. Leviticus 23, 27 through uh, 32. Also, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. And it actually is Yom Kippurim. Atonements. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on the same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not work, who, who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no, ma- no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening until evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. From this we get it's a holy convocation. It's a gathering thing, whatever that means. It's a gathering thing. Okay? Everybody's supposed to get together. Afflict your souls. And actually the Torah doesn't tell us what afflict your souls means. It just doesn't at all. We don't know. We can assume, since it's often referred to a fast is called afflicting your souls, we can assume that it's a fast. And in fact, we get good indications elsewhere that that's exactly what it is by examples that other people give. So it would be a fast. It's an offering made by fire is to be made. Uh, it doesn't tell us specifically here, but we're going to read elsewhere in, in it where the outline of what offerings are made. It's, it's rather elaborate. The beginning of, from the beginning to the end of the day. Essentially, the main uh, offerings or sacrifices being made, uh, the main sacrifices with blood are going to be a bull and uh, multiple bulls, actually, and goats. Okay? Uh, Sabbath rest. No work. And it's a statute for how long? Forever. Now, so far, everybody's great. This is, oh, this is historical stuff. Yeah. Okay, we know this. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I have, I have provided you, and you're welcome to use anything you'd like in, while, we're, while we're discussing, I have provided for you the Hebrews names version in the back of your uh, workbook. It is not a great version. It really isn't. It is basically the author, it is basically the, uh, 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 the, uh, no, no, it's the uh, ASV. It's the American Standard Version of around 19, I want to guess 1910, 1901. Okay. Uh, it's not a great version. It's a, as a modern version, no, it's pretty good. The New American Standard Version is actually a date. Is the NASB is actually based upon that. It's simply a reworked version of that, an updated date. Hebrews name version, they simply put the Hebrews names in it. And I did that not to throw you off, except for a little bit. Yeah. It's part of the part of the plan is to put you as much as we can at times into context. Uh, having said that, Hebrews names version is not perfect. They do fiddle with the tenses as well, and there are some other uses and inclusions of words. The Hebrews names version does not give you italicized for added words. Okay, so we will be careful in the use of it. However, it's a good reading source, and it's what I'd like you to use to read. Okay, but while we're in here, you can use whatever you like. Let's go to Hebrews ten four, where it says for. It is not possible. 
Is that it? One through four. One through four. Okay, ten, ten through, yeah, ten, one through four. For the law, or that is the Torah, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices. And it's speaking, by the way, if you went back to chapter 9, it's speaking about Yom Kippur. This is what it's speaking of. It's speaking of the Day of Atonement, what we just read of. It can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who, are, who approach perfect. For they would not have ceased to be offered. Or would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more conscience of, consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. Do we have one book contradicting another book? We know that's not possible. It's not possible. What we must understand is, and try to explain why, the common explanation is, well, that's easy. Yom Kippur, that was before the cross. Now there's a new way. But what did we read in the very commands of Yom Kippur? This is a statute forever. Not until a time when I tell you no more. This is a statute forever. Now, again, you've got to spiritualize or you've got to play dispensational games to be able to bring the two together unless there's something that we are not seeing. And there is. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. What I was taught in the church was that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, but it could cover it up for a while. Oh, oh so it's temporary covering. It would only last about 364 days. Serious? Okay, so until the next year. Well, actually, no, listen, that's, okay, no, that's, there's an explanation, right? Okay. The blood of, of Messiah... Well, what can wash away my sins? Absolutely. Right, you know. Absolutely. There it is. Yeah. Yeah, so the hymn comes. Exactly. Exactly. Now, before you start getting... Uh, you all know me real well, but before anybody that's listening to this starts thinking I'm advocating starting a barbecue up in the backyard and start having Yom Kippur sacrifices, <laughs> I am not. Uh, but I do not believe that sacrifices, if they were being offered today in a temple in Jerusalem, would be detracting or taking away from the sacrifice of Yeshua. I do not believe that at all. Because as we're going to get into this book, we're going to discover real soon that neither do the writers of the apostolic scriptures. And in fact, this is the point they're trying to make. They're trying to draw marvelous pictures and outlines for us. Anyway, the discrepancy... The apparent discrepancy is there for us to ask the question. How does this work? What do I not understand about Yom Kippur? What do I not understand about the sacrifice of Yeshua? It's, it's doubtful to me that most people, in approaching the scripture, having already approached the, the apostolic scriptures from a, from a belief that they're true, that they would have any doubt with the work of Yeshua and his blood being the perfect atonement, the perfect covering, and a complete forgiveness of their sins. It's doubtful to me that they would have that issue. So the main question comes in is, what do I not understand about the Levitical sacrifices and Yom Kippur that seems to be causing me a problem? 
unless I can explain them away through a theological approach. Well, dispensationalism is one explanation, but let me show you how dispensationalism doesn't work. Because immediately in the chapter before, chapter 9, verse 13, we get a contradictory statement between 9.13 and 10.4. 9.13 says, or apparent contradictory statement, uh, 10.4 says, po- says it's impossible for the blood of go- bulls and goats to take away sins. 9.13 says, for if the blood of Go- bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean sanctifies for the puring of the fle- purifying of the flesh does it or doesn't it? Yeah. 10.4 it says it's not possible for the bulls, blood of bulls and goats to take away sins 9.13 it says the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sanctify Well, obviously we're hearing two different words, aren't we? But what do we normally do when we read those words? We blend them all into a common thing. My sins are forgiven. Right? This is one thing very important. And and you all know this. You've you've heard me say it before. The sacrifices from from the Torah were not always about sin. In fact, of the five main sacrifices, only two are about sin. So there's obviously a lot about sacrifices we don't understand if we automatically think sacrifices are about sin because they're not always about sin. All exactly. They're always about obedience. What do we immediately do? Actually, I shouldn't say we. Let me rephrase that. I'm trying to be inclusive because I don't want to sound like I'm picking on other people. But what do some people do when they read about sacrifices in the Old Testament? They immediately say, the blood of bulls and goats I have not desired, but a body yet you have prepared for me. Well, that's a quote from the Psalms. It is a quote, but they don't mean it as a nice quote, do they? They say God doesn't want sacrifices. Yes, he did. And he does. And if he didn't, we would be completely have no hope sacrifices are not bad and when we get the the perspective that they are we're going to miss what he's done for us by the way 9.13 speaks in the present tense just like 10 does uh, 10.4 it says the ashes of a red heifer the blood of goats and calves hold on let me go 9.13 uh, for the blood of bulls and goats the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh sanctifies is in the present tense it does sanctify you probably already figured it out but maybe some people that are hearing haven't we'll get to it when we get to chapter 9 we're going to go directly into this so my point was not to solve the question, solve the, solve the, 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 the question, answer the question. My point was to raise the question. We got him late nine weeks. Actually, it's, it's, it's after we finish the first part. Theology cannot unlock the book of Hebrews. Theology will attempt to push all of these questions into a theological system. It's nothing wrong with theological systems. Let me tell you something. Theological systems can help. It can, they can help people, especially people who don't know their, their Bibles or people who are unsure of their faith, they can help people uh, uh, buttress against the attacks of the enemy. They, they, they do a marvelous job because they, they teach people the things they're supposed to know and believe. 
but unfortunately, they're also a shortcut. They're a shortcut for our duty. And our duty is to know these things that God has given to us to know. Uh, so, but a theological system cannot answer this question in and of itself. And the reason why is because most theological systems are set up to, in fact, settle, uh, to do away with the question. They don't want the question asked. One of them, it comes from shadows. Short quotes of Hebrews are... It, usually, Hebrews is, is reduced to short quotes. For the... Uh, um, for the sword of the spirit is uh, is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to, you know, however you want to, whatever version you're getting it from, right? Well, what are, what are we learning about the uh, the the word of God as a as a as a as a sword and as a as a weapon? There, we learn that it's a it's a spiritual offensive weapon or whatever else which it is. But when we begin to read that that short passage in context, we see that that's not necessarily the point being made. Uh, um, that's some other con- uh, some other quotes from Hebrews we take out of context. There you go. We know that one right off. Uh, what's another one? Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, actually, not to be denigrating because all of these things are true, and actually, it's it's great that people are quoting these verses. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't this wonderful? Yeah. Can I skip all the first part and go straight to eleven? Yeah, yeah. Or thirteen, which is very practical. Very practical. You know, marriage bed is uh, is uh, is uh, honored and, and, and shouldn't be uh, reviled. Uh, all those. Uh, what's another one? Now, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. You know, you grab those things right out of context. Uh, not necessarily that they're bad out of context, but we quote them without trying to find out what's the what's the source, what's being said. Um, uh, one of them actually is this word shadow. We use it a lot. What are shadows? They're mere shadows. Mere shadows of the things uh, which were to come. Hebrews 10.1. It says a shadow. What is a shadow? Here, here, let me read this for you from Hebrews 8, which is also uses the same word. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, speaking of Messiah, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That doesn't sound bad at all. But when I read chapter 10, verse 1... I hear, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. Or more importantly, when I go to Colossians, it's a mere shadow. That's a shadow. Our, our, our theological ancestors um, read this word and they go, well, I know what that means. I've read Plato, come on. We're in a cave. It's very dark. We have no idea what's going on around us. Our only grasp of reality are these these... These images that are being projected on the back wall of the cave. The back wall of this cave, we see these shadows and it's, it's not very clear, but that's real. The darkness around us is not. If we could just rise to the occasion and walk out of the cave and experience the real spiritual reality, while we'd be in the sunlight, we'd see it all. But while we're in this life, we're confined. Unless you can have a, find a spiritual master, as Plato would, would encourage us to do. Uh, we're, we're basically have to be content with the shadows in the back of the wall. It's a question between what's real. Is this life real? Or is it simply a shadow of a spiritual truth? You see, we have all bought into this in very damaging ways. It permeates our thinking. You've been taught 
that when someone dies, you stand over their grave and go, that's not really them. Haven't you? I have. Is that true? It isn't all of them, but it's part of them. (laughs) Isn't it? How do you know me? Can you see my spirit? Can you even hear my spirit? How do you know me? You know me by seeing me and hearing me physically, don't you? I am, I am revealing who I am to you by a physical manifestation. It's real. It's very real. And we all are. And the world around us is real. It is a theological, no, it is a philosophical game to play, to say that the world around us is not real. The only real reality, which is an amazing statement, the only real reality is that which we do not see. Well, Christians immediately grasp this and they go, this is wonderful. Well, God's invisible. He's the highest reality there is, isn't he? Well, this is perfect. It fits perfectly with Christianity. Here, I'll take Plato and whatever this religion of the Bible is and I'll cram them together. And there, Christianity. Isn't it wonderful? And the problem is, that's exactly what we've inherited. And we have inherited it not only in our theology, we've inherited it in the very way that we look at life. Because Western civilization is built upon this idea. There is a higher reality. There is a higher reality, actually. But it is revealed to us, number one, by an all-knowing and all-caring God. And he reveals it to us in ways that we can understand. What we do not know, what he does not reveal to us, is not our business to know. He reveals himself to us in the physical. He reveals himself to us with his voice and his words. Right? They're real. They're not just spiritual. They are spiritual too, by the way. But we need to rephrase how we use... If we've perverted the word spiritual, maybe we need to rephrase it. They are spiritual. But they're not separate and distinct from the physical. They're encapsulated within the physical. So this shadow term in theology is a, is, is a, is a, is a negative word. A bad thing. Valerie? I was just going to say that this is exactly what um, Paul writes about to the Romans in the first chapter. He does. He says God has revealed reality to you. That's right. And therefore you don't have any excuse. He's revealed it in tangible ways. Uh, Let me read you this. Now first of all, this word shadow in the Greek is the word uh, skia. Uh, in the Septuagint, if we take that back to uh, the Hebrew to derive the Hebrew word, it's tzel, uh, tzadi lamed. Here's that same word in the Septuagint, and also in our English Bibles, it uses shadow as well. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens. Lay the foundation of the earth and say to Zion, You are my people. That's from Isaiah 51, 15 through 16. So the question I have is, this is a shadow of his hand. Is a shadow a bad thing or a good thing? 
in that case, I, I'm, I'm hoping I got that shadow. <laughs> in fact, what you're going to find is, by the way, shadow can be used negatively in Hebrew as well. Uh, it, the, the, the shadow, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the same word. But what we need to understand is, when you're a, when you're a, when you're a person, a, a nomadic person, especially out in the desert, there ain't nothing as good as having a shadow over you, right? But what does a shadow do? This is the key. What does a shadow do? It provides an outline. It provides a picture. A tangible way of seeing what it is that blocks the light. It's not a Plato thing. It's a real, it's a real explanation of what we see in real life. What does it do? It outlines the shape of something. Which is exactly his point in Hebrews 8. He says... Talking about the priest serving according to the, to the law, serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, see to it you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. They're an outline. They give us a physical, visible way of seeing what it looks like. So, if something is a shadow... What we're supposed to immediately say is, this is something invisible to me, and yet God's given me a way of seeing it in this world around me. Because there is a shadow caster. Because there is a shadow caster. That's right. There is a shadow caster. So, by the way, this shadow, Matthew Henry, I love Matthew Henry, except certain things that he writes. He refers to his old the Old Testament as a dark dispensation. An angry God. I'll read you some of his uh, quotes next week. He re- repeatedly makes denigrating statements, not only about not only about the people of God as being described in what he calls the Old Testament, but against the system that God ordained by His own mouth for them to approach Him. And Matthew Henry is not alone; he is in the majority. Most. Commentators refer to this shadow, this dispensation, this thing that was before as bad and negative. This kind of dismissive, think- dismissive thinking will never let us discover the deep truths and the interrelationship between the covenants and the new covenant. When we get, when we get later on in the book of Hebrews, we need to have this kind of stuff expunged from our minds because when we get to the new covenant we need to see it for what, how God has revealed it uh, philosophy can't do it either well as we talked about Plato second third generation believers second century following were Jewish they were Gentile their background uh, was in fact uh, founded their education was thoroughly Greek, Greek classic uh, Augustine is a perfect example he was uh, thoroughly convinced and thoroughly uh, immersed in, in Greek philosophy uh, it was his foundation for living, which is why he had such a, such a deplorable li- uh, uh, lifestyle uh, before coming to faith. Um, but he didn't abandon it, and neither did most of the early church fathers abandon such a, such a view. The philosophical approach uh, is the foundation for most of our theological explanations in the Bible. There's a f- form of pagan dualism. It's competing forces. There's good and there's evil. Well, that's true. Um, uh, but they take the truths and create a sort of uh, tension some places where there is no tension. I'll give you some examples. I'm calling it theistic Platonism. I didn't invent it, but that's what I'm going to use in this. Uh, it doesn't completely describe it, but it basically it is, it is Plato with a godly spin on it. 
uh, Origen believed that Plato was actually a proto-believer. I don't know how, but whatever. Uh, a proto-believer, yeah. Um, the approach that, that uh, they explain Hebrew away, Hebrews away in either-or uh, terms. It's either-or, or it's things against each other. There's the sacrifices of bulls and goats and ashes of a red heifer, and then there's the sacrifice of Yeshua. And then, never the twain shall meet. And they have no relationship. Look how bad that was. Well, see how good this is? Right? Instead, what they need to understand, what they're missing is, this is a literary device, this is a very Hebraic literary device, called uh, Homer, which is light to heavy. If you take away, if you take away the place to stand when making this argument, the lever that makes the argument doesn't work. Which is why the book becomes weak and useless. If the Torah was not true, then there's no foundation. Or if it's not continuing to be true, there's no foundation on which to stand to make the statements that this writer makes. Which is what the point the writer's making. Here's, the, here's, here's uh, theistic Platonism. We have physical or spiritual. It's not both. That's very Gnostic. Works or faith. Old covenant versus new covenant. They're in opposition to one another. Law or grace. You're under the law. I'll be under grace. Judaism or Christianity. The temple system or Yeshua. Never both. Now, those may not seem bad to you. That's fine. Uh, I have these. This, this is in your first lesson, your uh, workbook as well. Um, or the intro. Um, this may not seem bad to you. That's fine. Uh, hopefully, as we get into this, maybe you'll modify your view. I don't know. This is, this is the way that I think that we should see Hebrews. And in fact, I believe this is the visual metaphor given to us for the book of Hebrews. Physical is visible, and yet within it is the spiritual invisible. And the, the passage that I'm getting from there is chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. I believe this is actually, the, as we approach this book and look at this book, I think this is the, the precise key to unlock the entire book is found in chapter 9. And the, in the picture of the tabernacle. And uh, um, we're going to go through it word by word. And, and it is a uh, marvelous, marvelous picture that's being painted that helps us understand everything that's going on in this book. Like the makeup of man, they are not in conflict. The visible is not in conflict with the invisible. The physical is not in conflict with the uh, the spiritual, they're in unity. It's not dualism where there's either or against one another. It's in fact the opposite. It's echad. It's in unity. In perfect unity. I would offer to you that Yeshua is the manifestation of the invisible God. There you got it. When I see him... I see what cannot be seen. And they're not separate. They're the same. They're one. Anachronism is another problem we're going to have in this book. Where we take things uh, out of context, out of time. The anachronism, out of time. An out of time thing. A perfect example, and I'm going to read it. It's in your workbook, but I'm going to read it to you here. Just so that you hear it uh, with my wonderful intonation here. Many, this is my New King James... Introduction to the book of Hebrews. This is a man's commentary. Many Jewish believers, having stepped out of Judaism into Christianity, 
want to reverse their course in order to escape persecution by their countrymen. The writer of Hebrews exhorts them to go on to perfection. Chapter 6, verse 1. That's true. His appeal is based on the superiority of Christ over the Judaic system. Christ is better than the angels, for they worship him. He is better than Moses, for he created him. He is better than the Aaronic priesthood, for his sacrifice was once for all time. He is better than the law, for he mediates a better covenant. In short, there is more to be gained in Christ than to be lost in Judaism. Pressing on in Christ produces tested faith, self-discipline, and a visible love seen in good works. Of course, I would immediately ask the person, what are good works? Although the King James Version uses the title, the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews, there is no early manuscript evidence to support this. The oldest and most reliable title is simply Pros Hebreos to Hebrews. What is anachronistic about that statement? I'm not talking about what's wrong with it, because there's a lot right with it, actually. But what's, what's anachronistic? What was anachronistic? Did, you, did anybody hear anything anachronistic out of time? Many Jewish believers, having stepped out of Judaism into Christianity, want to reverse the course in order to escape persecution by their countrymen. What's Christianity? What's Judaism? It's hard to describe it. It's hard to come up with titles, honestly. I understand that. Because Judaism didn't call itself Judaism then either. But one thing's for sure. Christianity didn't call itself something different than Judaism either. Early believers didn't leave whatever it was that was called what we call Judaism today. They hadn't left it. There was no... They were going, what are you talking about? They were reading goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who went where? We didn't do any... What are you, you're talking about somebody else. We have, this is not us. That was those the scenes. They left Judaism. Actually, they didn't either. <laughs> okay, they left the temple system. Anachronisms are, are damaging to our understanding as we read Scripture any scripture, but especially things like this, that we need to have a historical and a literary understanding. We're going to get a good literary understanding, because this book is, is, is very refined Greek, but it's very Hebraic in thought. And the way that things are put together are, are extremely, again, this is my anachronism, extremely rabbinic. It's an anachronism because there's no such thing as rabbinic when this was written. <laughs> However, the rabbinic comes from the, same, from the same source. In other words, it's like the rabbis, would th- how they would think about things. This, is, this book is, we're going to see how it's very much on that, on that model. Paul is as well, all of his epistles. But the anachronisms will throw us off. So we can't, we can't rely on them. But we do have a very faithful record. The book of Acts is a historical record. We could pick up encyclopedias and try and read all about the first century. That'd be fine and well, but again, we're going to take man's view of it. If we read the book of Acts faithfully, if we're careful to, to try and sort out the context of this book, we're going to discover that there are a lot of things that maybe we didn't know about this period. And one of them is the believers hadn't left what we today would call Judaism. They hadn't left it at all. And we're going to, that's why we're going to spend the first four weeks studying Acts. Some questions. Here's some basic questions we're going to come up come up with. This is there's others as well. The reason why I put these up is these are some common questions that people wouldn't ask. <laughs> they wouldn't ask these questions. I read the book of Hebrews. I never had those questions. 
What was the purpose of the Tabernacle Temple? What are you talking about? It's not a book about the Tabernacle of the Temple. All sure has a whole lot of Tabernacle Temple stuff in it. Okay, so it wasn't a book about the Tabernacle Temple. Then why do you keep bringing it up? What was the purpose of the sacrifices and why aren't they done away with? What are you talking about? I need my sins forgiven. They gave me a picture of what it was to get my sins forgiven. Well, is that what they were really about? How did the ancients get saved? That's getting saved. Did they understand get saved? What's the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? When did the New Covenant begin? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I have a good one for you, too. When did the church begin? What's the church? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm asking questions because I want to. Be, I want to. I want. I want to understand why it is that God put these thing, little things in here for us. These little nuggets. He wants us to learn something. How did the early believers view themselves as members of a new religion? Certainly, some of them did. I would hope some of them did. Coming out of the Temple of Diana, yeah, I joined the new religion. I ain't been part of that one anymore. What does all this have to do with the world to come? What's the world to come? In fact, we're going to discover early on that this book is about the world to come. We had another question this week along those same lines. How come there's no covenants in the New Testament? There isn't a covenant in it. Where, where, are, where are the conditions and the stipulations of the New Covenant found within the Brit Hadashah? Is that a good title, Brit Hadashah? New Covenant? Where is the Old Covenant? What's the Old Covenant? Which Old Covenant? Which Old Covenant? Jeremiah 31, he says, not like the Old Covenant. Not like the one, excuse me, it doesn't say the old covenant. Not like the one that your fathers, that I made with your fathers, that they broke my covenant. What is the old covenant? There is an old covenant to them, most certainly is. What is the old covenant? What is the new? And when did the old covenant get, come into being? Most people don't ask these questions because they're settled for them. That's fine. They can do that. I, I love to ask these questions because I want to know more. Under an hour. Let's, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Father, you have uh, indeed given us a clear and a true word. We ask that you might uh, help us to set aside our preconceived ideas and the uh, things that uh, deter us. Lord, we know that the greatest deterrence we have to understanding your word is our own sin. And Father, we ask that you help us to put those things aside that distract us, that trip us up, that entangles us and puts us in bondage. You have called us to be a freed people, for you have done a work of redemption has freed us indeed. Teach us how it is that we can act upon that freedom. And Father, how we can bless your name uh, in walking in obedience to you. And how we can bring such glory to you uh, 
uh, to the world, those things visible and invisible, Father, uh, that all things might know that you are master of all. We bless your name and we thank you for the perfect work of Yeshua. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's uh, say the blessing for after Torah. You're welcome to join in. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natananu Torah Temet Vechaye Olam Natabet Ocheinu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah Amen Amen Thank you.